are you telling me, Casey? How much I love you, Sheena. So much it busts my heart. we're doing is Sheena Queen of the Jungle. I should mention that we do these podcasts in bursts so we get together and we do several at a time yes. and it so happens that we've done th- we're doing three tonight which completely accidentally are linked in the sense that they are what I call animal movies. Seriously this is like calling Argento's three film the animal trilogy. It doesn't work but go for it. Works for me <laughs> but the, for instance we did one we've just recorded one which I call the dog movie Yeah. Uh, but this one, I'm spoiled for choice because it's Sheena, Queen of the Jungle, just called Sheena in most of its incarnations. Yes. But there's lots of animals, and I'm, you know, I'm a sucker for animals in anything. I mean, real animals, uh, wildlife. I don't know how much was actually shot in Africa, but there is a lot of African wildlife in yeah. it. And so this is a big time animal movie. It is an impressive film. I mean, the money has been spent here, which I don't think the film necessarily warrants. And I think they had uh, ambition, certainly, to I think believe this was meant to be a trilogy. Well, let's pull back a bit. Sheena, Queen of the Jungle, yes. was created by Will Eisner and Jerry Iger, who were okay. a couple of major uh, movers and shakers in the comic book world. DC Comics? No. no. This was back before that. Uh, this yeah. would be in the late 1930s. Will Eisner is best known for creating The Spirit. If you're into comics and have never seen Will Eisner's The Spirit, go and immediately look at, at it. The art and the writing, too, are wonderful. Anyway, Jerry Iger and Will Eisner created Sheena the Queen of the Jungle, who was a female repost to Tarzan. Yeah. It's hilarious. My dad, uh, who was never into comics or that kind of thing, was always really particular that you said Tarzan and not Tarzan. Like he thought that there was a, that a certain pronunciation was acceptable and the other wasn't. How did he feel about Cartmel and Cartmel? Well, that's hilarious because I can't even remember. <laughs> and I'm not even sure which one I prefer. I think Cartmel. But I think Tarzan or Tarzan are both equally. Anyway, they somebody, so these guys, Eisner and Iger, came up with this fabulous notion of a female Tarzan. Because, fabulous because... It's just a great idea. Strong, empowered woman. Uh, she looks sexy swinging through the trees. Then, and this leads to some confusion, although they they created the character, the first comic book in which she ever appeared was written by William Thomas and drawn by Mort Meskin. So that often leads to people saying William Thomas created Sheena. In a sense, he did because he wrote the first outing for her. But this was all back, that was back in 37 and 38. So some, almost 50 years later, in the early 80s, there was a move to put Sheena on the screen, which was, I think, a very smart move. And this movie came out in 1984, and it was a big box office failure, and it's considered sort of a campy disaster. Uh, a disaster in the sense that the movie failed at the box office. Not, it's not a disaster movie. Although it is directed by John Gillerman, who directed The Towering Inferno, which yeah. is a disaster movie, and quite an effective one. And it's a Lorenzo Semple Jr. script, which... No, it's not. Well, some you, I, there are bits in that which are clearly Lorenzo Sample. What the the Towering Inferno? 
No, no, this film, Sheena. Yes, it, this is very clearly... Sorry, folks. Lorenzo Sample and John Gilliman worked together on King Kong. I have to correct my friend here. Uh, the Towering Inferno was written by Sterling Yeah, Sullivan. I know that. No, no, I, I was just talking about this film. In terms of credentials, you've got Gulliman as a director, but you've also got oh, Lorenzo yeah. Sample as writer. I mean, you've got some... There's some force behind this film. Uh, yeah, and I, I'm a huge admirer of Lorenzo Sample. Have you ever seen Pretty Poison? No, actually, you I must, haven't. You must check it well, out. Maybe you can set it as a challenge for me. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but <laughs> the, what is most pertinent to, me, to the, this movie is the fact that Lorenzo Semple created the TV series Batman, the mm. 60s series, which I'm just chuckling just thinking about. It. He also uh, wrote the script for Flash Gordon and for King Kong, which John Gilliman directed. So that was the, the, the previous time they worked together. And he's a very good screenwriter, and he's quite at home, as you can see from that list, with comic book, comic strip concepts, and fantasy movies. So he's ideal for this. But the other names in the script are David Newman, and I knew that name right away because he started out writing a string of really top movies in collaboration with Robert Benton, starting with Bonnie and Clyde, which was an enormous success. They then, that team broke up. They both went on to do their own things. They're both very important filmmakers. David Newman notably wrote Superman, the Christopher Reeve Superman movie. When I say he wrote it, he's one of the... the yeah, one of 80 writers. <laughs> yeah, but one of the major writers, <laughs> yeah. along with Mario Puzo on that. So he, again, was comfortable with this kind of comic book material. And I thought, well, OK, he must have made quite an interesting contribution to this. And the other name, the other credited writer on this is Leslie Stevens. And I thought, who the heck's that? And I looked him up, and he only is the creator of The Outer Limits. He did a lot of TV work, including creating The Outer Limits. He did the very first draft of the script, and apparently he went big time in a Chariot of the Gods direction, which won't mean much to people now, but Ancient Astronauts, uh, the last Indiana Jones movie was a bit like this. Anyway, he pushed it in a science fiction and fantasy direction, and it wasn't really where they wanted to go. But I am thinking that Sheena's psychic powers to command animals, which I don't think is in the comics at all, might well have come from that draft of the script. If that was sort of science fiction, fantasy, supernatural kind of stuff, maybe that's where it came from. I don't know, but it's it's an interesting guess. You're looking at me like I've got something to add to that. No, okay, so, so then so I know... I, well, actually, I was wondering about the ability to... I'm trying to think what year... Was... Um, Crocodile Dundee 84, that was, that was 85, wasn't it? What does he have? A, I've never seen that. So does he have he a power has, over animals? He has. He's got a little oh thing that he does with animals. And, uh, Matt is waving <laughs> his hands in the air. <laughs> I was just thinking if it worked. <laughs> <laughs> in, in a kind of um, uh, that sort of sign that heavy metal rockers make with their hands. So, uh, where were we? I wanted to add one thing because I'm a script anorak. I'm very interested in script drafts. Uncredited, there was also a draft by Dean Reasoner, who is a very proficient screenwriter who's did a lot of work with Clint Eastwood and Don Siegel. Notably, he's got a good credit on Dirty Harry. And apparently, he took the David Newman draft, and which which was big on humor and character, and turned and took away a lot of the humor and character and made it very much action oriented. Then Lorenzo Semple came in and he sort of restored. Yeah. The uh, the David Newman draft. And the thing about Lorenzo Semple is his stuff is tongue-in-cheek in a very effective way. And I, I, I like to think, in this movie, the bad guy is an African prince who's murdered his brother, who's the king of the country. So you've got this black bad guy, but all of his henchmen are white. They're white mercenaries. But the interesting thing is that 
the, this guy, the prince, isn't really an African because he's so Americanized. He's an American football star in the O.J. Simpson mold. And this was back before O.J. Simpson was known as a criminal. He was just known as O.J. Simpson. So that, that kind of amusing characterization, uh, especially for a bad guy and an African prince, making him like an American football star, seems to me Lorenzo Semple kind of thing to do. Okay. Now, in terms of first impressions on this one, we discussed this very briefly on a previous podcast. I don't know if it was our preview one or not. And the reason I said I thought you might like this film was because of the soundtrack. And you said, no, you hated the soundtrack because it was synth. Now that you've heard it in context with the film, the main theme, do I'm you still actually, feel that way? I, I, I'm slightly regretting having got rid of the record. And the reason I, I don't think it was just because it was electronic. My main problem was that it was a digital recording. Right. And an early digital recording at that. So when I've been, I've got rid of about a thousand LPs, and I need to get rid of about a thousand more, which gives you some idea of the size of my library here. And one of the criteria was getting rid of stuff, most of the stuff that's digitally recorded, because it just sounds not as good as analog stuff. So that's largely why I got rid of Sheena. But the Sheena, what Richard Hartley has done with the music here, is he. It's really effective. Like so, when Sheen is riding along on her zebra, yes, she does ride a zebra. Well, uh, she rides a horse that's been painted. Well, I'm glad you said that because I <laughs> wanted to get to that because it's a well-known fact that you you can't uh, domesticate zebras. You can't ride them. What I love about this is they didn't know this until about two weeks before filming. I knew it. <laughs> and then they were well, this. Everyone knows it. And then they were trying to find a zebra that they could use. They could um, mount. Yeah. And discovered that there is no such thing. So they, yeah, they painted a horse, but I actually think it looks pretty good. I thought it was no, I thought I it looked great, but it. I just it I, looks really bad in the LA shot stuff, which is um, oh, they shot stuff on the backstage. That's mainly the funeral. So when they bury the shaman, okay, um, some of that is actually on a uh, uh, soundstage. Yeah, you can see the backgrounds are awful, but it matches up kind of nicely with location stuff. But yeah. So those sequences, the paint shows up quite badly under the studio lights, but once they're on location, it looks all right. I, oh, the, the, the paint on the, the stripes on the zebra. Yeah, yeah no, the, the horse looks great. And I've got to say, okay, so Tanya Roberts is the actress who plays yes. Sheena. I, I just want to say a quick thing about yeah, Tanya Yeah, please Robertson. do. Tanya Roberts is never going to be one of the world's greatest actresses. Well, I'm glad you got that out there so we can blame you for saying that, but it's true. However, I think... She does a fantastic job in this film. In a really difficult role. And it's it's not even a really difficult role, it's a shit role. I've heard her talk about this in the past. Well, and it's a shit she role. was expected it's a great to role. Yeah, if you're gonna use the stunt people, but instead she's gotta do it all. Oh I was very impressed that like we're back in the territory of Franco Nero here. Yeah. Just 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 to cross reference, we we saw a movie called Street Law starring Franco Nero in which yeah. And he's a big star, was a big star then. He was doing all his own stunts, so this is a bit like but that. He was dressed. <laughs> yeah. She's basically wearing her pants and no shoes, and even simple things like climbing up Just rocks. For our American listeners, pants means underwear. Yes. Well, in this case, <laughs> a sort of leotardy kind of thing. Well, she's basically wearing the pants kind of things. outfit that um, Raquel Welch, the sort of fur bikini that Raquel Welch yeah. wore in A Million BC. But she's got a lot to do. It's not. What she's having to do on screen is not easy. Oh, and no, I did. And she I... does a hell of a lot of her own stunts because although they had uh, Tracy Eden, of all people, um, Sophie I Aldred's s- stunt I double. I saw that there was a, a stunt woman involved in this. Yeah. She was the first name in the stunt But group. they didn't use, they only used her on the UK stuff. Um, she didn't go on location. And actually the stunt arranger was Roy Scammell, who um, you should also remember. Uh, who, yeah, so Tracy Eden, I'm just checking the name. 
Yeah, they, they were people we worked with on Doctor Who, correct? Yeah. And, I mean, in the 80s, all your good stunt people were from the UK anyway, so that was the team that we used for almost everything. Uh, possibly because of Pinewood and Elstree, those were the ones that were What you're getting at is that mostly uh, Tanya Roberts did her own stunts. She had to do her own stunts. It wasn't a question of, um, you know, are you okay doing this stunt, are you okay doing this stunt? It was a question of her being told to do, you've got to do this, you've got to do that, because it will look better on screen. It does look better on screen, but I can't help thinking that she probably got paid bugger all for this film as well, compared to the male stars. Poor woman. And I can understand fully why she wouldn't have wanted to do a sequel. I believe there was one on offer, but she, it was never well, going to be Well, there was never going to be a sequel, because this well, movie tanked big time. There was going to be a Quest for Peace-style sequel, so it was going to be zero money, uh, straight to video. I don't know what Quest for Peace is. Superman 4, the canon one. So it's where they basically threw 10 quid at it. I love the way it. you throw this out there, as though people will know what Quest for Peace is. Well... Yeah, we're talking about comic books right now. It's a comic book film. No, okay, no, but thank you for clarifying that. Uh, no. But yeah, no, I, I've got a lot of respect for Tanya Roberts in this film. She, if it weren't for her, it would not be as good a there film. There are a couple sequences when she's called upon to do some kind of fairly heavy-duty acting, and she just sort of doesn't know what to do. No. But it, it's a root. My sympathies are with her because it's not an easy character to play because it's not as though anybody's ever played a jungle queen before. And also, as you say, she's doing her own stunts. She has to look statuesque and beautiful and scantily clad. She, so she's got to be sexy. She's got to do her own stunts. She has to be convincing as a jungle queen, which she genuinely, generally is. And she does have these remarkable eyes. She's got these kind of living dead pale blue eyes, which are pretty scary. It's almost Meg Foster style. Oh, I've never thought of that before, but I just I was sort of thinking, oh, that, you know, and the trouble is, I think with a better, more sympathetic director, an actor's director, Ted Kotcher, mm -hmm. for example, could have just worked with her a bit and even, dare I say, I'm, I'm trying to, I'm not sure how much I'm allowed to say, but for instance, for, for, Delta and the Bannerman, we have, <laughs> okay, that, which is a Doctor Who story. Right. I don't even want to know where this is going. That, that we have. Yes. Uh, Delta is played by Belinda Maine. Maine. Right. And the thing about that, she looks great. She's very beautiful and like has a real star quality. Like the camera loves her. But she and, was bored as hell throughout. And... Well, she wasn't doing any acting. No. So to speak. But but sometimes if you have somebody who's just a non-actor or not acting, if you want them. They can look really alien. They can look really, like, very convincingly not quite normally human. And it does work in Roberts' favour, in the, especially when it comes to the humour, um, in the, her well, misunderstanding of things. And let's, her... let's get to that in a sec, because it's really great. But, so what I was going to go on to say is that sometimes, by not acting, you can come across in this really interesting, cool, as an unusual human being. And that's what... I felt Belinda Maine did in Delta and the Bannerman. Right. And I thought a, a good director could have exploited that quality in Tanya Roberts here because she has those amazing eyes. And instead of her trying to act in some of these scenes, just more of that blankness would have come across brilliantly. And the right director could have made her look fantastic in an acting way as well as an action way because she is great from the action point of view. Mm. I think... I, I get what you're saying with this. There are moments in there, actually, where I think less is more anyway. I think if she'd tried to push too hard with the emotion, it would never have worked. Her deadpanning of a lot of sequences actually pays I off. You needed to go more in that direction because at that time in that role, I don't think she had the uh, acting resources to deliver 
a deeply emotional performance. In all honesty, she hasn't now. I mean, you've seen View to a Kill, right? Uh, no, I did see View to a Kill many years ago. All right. I just wanted to say as a sidebar here, Tanya Roberts was both a Charlie's Angel and a Bond girl. She was. And actually, about three days ago, I watched her in a film called California Dreaming. And um, Oh, interesting. I hadn't realised until about halfway through it was her because she's brunette in it. And um, she is uh, equally challenged. But I am glad that you mentioned View to a Kill because I did say to you, Let's do a Roger Moore Bond, and it was between View to a Kill and something else, and I think View to a Kill is the one to go for. That's the one with Grace Jones, isn't oh, it? Oh, yeah, and Christopher Walken. Yeah, well, let's do that then. But yeah, so <laughs> I, I did see her in that, but so many years ago I had no idea who it was. So Tanya Roberts, I think I've, we get gets a lot of respect from us with the res- reservation that she isn't a great actress. No. Is that fair to say? I, yeah, yeah I think it is. But I think she's lucky here in the... You were just saying how unlucky she was. No, I think she's lucky. I think she comes out of it pretty much unscathed. I think she's the only one that comes out of this okay. Most of the other actors in it, I think, are not. Uh, Except for the one who plays the shaman, who you're going to talk about here. Elizabeth of Toro. Um, It's actually her name. It's actually her name. Um, I I actually wrote some stuff down here because I find her fascinating. Um, Ugandan princess, who. she, she fled the Idi Amin. Her region. family, yeah, as I recall, her family were exiled by Idi Amin. She came to Cambridge University where she took up a... She became a barrister. She took the, uh, the law degree. Um, and then she, I think she was the first woman on the cover of... It's not. She became Uganda's first female barrister, according to uh, yeah. the computer. Would it be Harper's Bazaar? Was that the, the magazine that she was the first woman on the cover possibly black woman it, on the it cover it does say that it's a, she was a successful model yeah she was the first black woman to appear on a harper's bizarre cover she was an ambassador un ambassador I uganda's united nations representative yep. roby ambassador now that's a hell of a see and she's very good in the film she's really good that's, yeah. that's the weird thing is that yeah this is clearly someone who's acting wasn't really high on her list of things to do that week <laughs> there's probably a lot going on <laughs> she did have a few other things to do <laughs> they should have got her to contribute the script but the script is is good now um, Sheena's love interest is an American journalist called Vic Casey, played by Ted Waz. Sorry. Yep. Yeah. Ted Waz. Played, played by a guy called Ted Waz, W-A-S-S, which I assume is called Waz. And I started out not liking him at all, but he grew on me considerably. I think he only grows on you when she starts to accept him. And he, his character actually changes the longer well, he's with true. her. That's which. True. <laughs> whoever thought this would be a film with character development but um, yeah I, I agree that by the end you do give a shit I'd like to lay down amongst the things I really love about this movie there's beautiful shots of wildlife there's these lakes with these, these full of flamingos and it's just ravishingly gorgeous and I... flocks of antelope or whatever they are I'm not a specialist what I love about this film is that he's never afraid to cut to a long shot in the middle of a scene you, know, you wouldn't usually go for a wide shot in a dialogue scene. And I don't know whether it's to cover up edits or what. <laughs> yeah, but nice. it's lovely because usually you get a wide shot, a nice big establishing shot of a bunch of elephants, and then you come in close for all your dialogue. But he brings it open in the middle of a dialogue scene and still shows you the nature. And it it keeps you on track with where you are. It keeps the location in your mind. And it makes you feel like... I actually think it adds to the the money on screen, making you think, okay, they were on location. I don't think they always were. But a lot of it was, and they have a tremendous cinematographer, Pascalino De Santis, who yeah. did uh, Zeffirelli's Franco, uh, Franco Zeffirelli's Romeo and Juliet. I oh, really? Believe. Oh, okay. Yeah. Um, my, 
my long-held Olivia Hussey obsession. <laughs> oh, t- tell me more. I don't think I will because I've got a feeling she was quite young in that film. <laughs> so let's just so avoid she, that. Sorry, she was in the film that we just, you, I just mentioned. Uh, she, yeah, she was uh, Juliet. Oh, well, that was... No, but that was supposed to be a hell of a movie. So it was. It was a great adaptation. Um, I, uh, the cinematography, again, uh, it does that quite clever thing that you see in Danger Diabolic. Yes. Where it frames certain shots and breaks them into panels. So you quite often shoot through objects. Well, like levels of depth, is that what we're talking about? Uh, well, no. In uh, Diabolic, for example, they'll shoot through girders and you'll get girders crossing over. There's a lot of false perspective, the is that what you're talking and about? And you'll get an image there, you get an image there, and you get an image there. Like you're looking at a comic book page with four panels with different images in each panel. And you get the same in this film where something, a branch or something, will cut across. You'll get the jeeps in the one section, you'll get the sunset in the other, and you'll get our heroes really close up in the other section. And it presents, it returns to the sort of comic book look. And it's not accidental, it's definitely deliberate. And it looks superb. There are some amazing shots in this film. And a lot of them are cheated as well. There's some very, very good matting going on for some of the close-ups. So he did win an Oscar for, oh, for Romeo and Juliet. That makes absolutely sense. Now... So the wildlife, and it's, they do do that Tarzan thing that there's these trained chimps who do pratfalls and they're supposed to be funny. Yeah, not much though, aren't it? But I, I didn't mind that. No. Uh, and they, they've got all these trained lions and a gorgeous leopard. I couldn't believe it. Just um, about two weeks before this, I was watching uh, Pee Wee's... Uh, Big Adventure? No. Big Top Adventure? Big Top Pee Wee. Yeah. Uh, have you seen Big Top Pee Wee? No. Uh, if you like... Animals, you, we all, should really do that. They'll all be CGI in that, won't they? Big Top Pee Wee, yeah. that was, eight, that was uh, yeah. 89, 90. Well, although I'm saying, you know. These I'm, are, this is the same thing though. This is a trained animals in shots with actors, not split screen. Yeah. And what makes this film all the more impressive is that we know these aren't CG. Yeah. I find animals in films now are boring because I know they're not real yeah, animals. Yeah, so, so we see um, the Casey's buddy, who's the cameraman, yeah. uh, being terrified by this lion lying beside him. And, and we see these lions lolling around beside Tanya Roberts, beside Sheena. And as you say, we know that they're actually right there. and it's That amazing. same um, cameraman at one point has to fall from the car in front of one of the lions. And I, yeah. If uh, you've ever seen people with lions, trainers will always tell you not to do that. Yeah, because they're going to eat you. <laughs> yeah, it's not recommended. It's so like saying dinner time. There are, there, I mean, have you heard of um, the Tippi Hedron film, Raw? I have. Yeah. Raw, by the way, is spelled R-O-A-R, not R-A-W. Yeah, and I mean, there were some serious injuries on set with that film with lions. It's a movie about lions, yeah. Yeah. Um, Wasn't it, it was sort of like a post-Jaws scary animal movie, I believe. Yeah, but where a lot of the crew were hospitalised and it didn't go well. Wow, well that sounds like one for our list. I can't think of the name of the guy. Who uh, directed, uh, Frank Darabont, was it him? Was you did the, the Green Mile? Who am I thinking of? Anyway, whoever the cinematographer was... Um, on that film, uh, got his head bitten open and had to have a lot of stitches. And I'm dying to see this movie With that, now. was about 81. This is 84. No no lessons have been learned here. <laughs> well, the, the, the animals are fabulous, although I did feel that often badly that they're being exploited. They look so wonderful. Really, if you're an animal, this is an amazing movie. It looks great. And the animals form the within the action. They belong within the action. This is what I like, is that when the elephant's used to raid the prison cell. Yeah. Um, it works and fair enough it, it's a bit grisly where it's got the electrified fence going off we know that the elephants 
not get electrified. My problems with these scenes was they just looked they they just looked so tacky. Mm. Uh, like when the the prison wall collapses, it's such a funny looking prison wall. But I loved all these animals and the basic structure of the screenplay is great because it's all it's all action. There's a brief bit at the beginning where everything is set up, but from quite early on in the movie, it's basically about Sheena and Vic Casey on the run from the bad guys, which is the prince and his white mercenaries. And the rest of the movie is about the them being pursued and fighting back and eventually triumphing. And in the course of that, <laughs> uh, Sheena frequently calls on her psychic powers to summon animals. And this movie features the best flamingo attack in the history of cinema. <laughs> it does. Um, even, uh, this, uh, the only downside of that is the, is the worst matting in the film. Um, well, you were looking at the matting, which means the back projection like the, yeah. the background photography so what happens is so our, our readers know readers listeners know is that um the along with this small army of mercenaries that the bad prince has got he's also got a, a helicopter a gun, helicopter gunship i think they call it anyway bad guy helicopter and he's also got a really great evil girlfriend the prince and the prince's evil girlfriend when they kept finally capture sheena the prince's evil girlfriend decides of course she would that you have to fly the helicopter over these fall waterfalls and drop Sheena out. Yeah, it's such a no, but it's such a great villain thing to do. It's and very I really Batman, liked it. isn't it? Well, yeah. Plus, it was perfect for this, this villainous woman here. And so the reason I bring all this up is because uh, they take Sheena up in the helicopter and try and chuck her out, but Sheena summons the flamingo. I couldn't believe it because flamingos—they're ungainly, beautiful pink birds. I thought. Is she going to summon the flamingos? She does. And the flamingos <laughs> attack the helicopter yeah. and cause such disruption that um, the evil villainess yeah, falls out instead of Sheena. But the thing is, obviously there's all this photography of the flamingos that are, is real. Then you have to cut to a point where it's fake stuffed flamingos attacking the helicopter. That bit, the fake stuffed flamingos attacking the helicopter and like pecking the, the, the pilot and stuff, is done really well. Well, because it's fast edited. Um, you I think it's on the screen too long. I think possibly that whole attack is maybe a minute too long. I I'd thought have cut it, it right I, I'm, I have no, like I, I am very unforgiving of stuff like this. Was dodgy. This was surprisingly not dodgy. It really was quite impressive. Well, what I like about uh, that plan aside of throwing Sheena over the waterfall. I like that for the most part people act fairly logically in this film. Um, sending up the helicopter to find them in the jungle makes perfect sense, and I also like that they. <laughs> Sheena and uh, Vic. Vic Casey. Yeah. You've got to say use both names. Um, they come up with this plan to destroy the petrol that they're driving. Well, I around. wanted to ask if that would work because what Sheena does is she fires a flaming arrow into this drum of gasoline because one of the vehicles in this small army of mercenaries is carrying all the fuel which they yeah. need for the helicopter. And the cars. Uh, yeah, they're, they're basically they're helpless without it. She calls it the water that their vehicles drink yes. rather sweetly. She shoots this flaming arrow into the drum and Hooray, we, we think that the whole um, cargo of, of fuel is going to go up. But what Matt's alluding to is the fact they call down the helicopter and the downdraft blast of, of air from the pro propellers, the, sorry, is that what they call them, on, on a helicopter, yeah. uh, blows out the fire. But would, with it... This would, is where I was going with this, is that I think that would actually make the fire yeah, worse. Yeah, me too. <laughs> <laughs> but, I mean, they have thrown a bit of sand on it, maybe that helps. But the other thing mm. is that the arrow, the way they make the arrow... Rotor blades, blades, not propellers. Beg your pardon. Yeah. Well, the rotor blades would be on the ones in the back, wouldn't it? No, the, ro the rotors are the ones that, that lift it. Who cares? Um, the arrow head yeah. is made of his penknife, which is metal. 
So that's bloody heavy. Oh, I didn't, didn't do I'm not that. sure that would work either. I would assume oh, when you fire that, it would just hit did, the ground. I didn't remember the construction of the outfit. But there's so much more to object to. She I, does excitedly exclaim, three fingers, maybe in terms was, of the weight. Maybe it is props. Anyway, the downwash of the helicopter, I thought, would fan the fire. I thought this is hilarious because they think it's going to put it out, but it's actually going to make it worse. But yeah. it doesn't. It does put it out. So I'm glad we're on the same page about that. I suppose it's possible that the drums would have petrol on the outside of them. And if the arrow hadn't penetrated the drum, it just set fire to the outside of the barrels, which would mean it would well, go I'm out of it's an elaborate rationalisation. <laughs> I just feel that we have to think what's actually happened here. But for the most part, like I say, the actions are logical. Where in terms of when they're following people, um, I like that they're losing people all the time, but we don't really seem to see that. I've got a feeling there may be scenes okay. cut. Now, do you know the name of the guy who plays the chief mercenary? I don't. The blonde guy. Yeah. Um, I, I really liked him. And he's a very good baddie, secondary baddie, because the prince is the main baddie. Okay, let's, let's give some credits here. I assumed they were meant to be South African mercenaries. I, I assumed I that we so, had African and South African. Or, or, you know, maybe Dutch, something like that. But anyhow. <laughs> no, no, that's seriously. Dutch so, mercenary. Trevor Thomas plays the prince, Prince Otwani, who's the head bad guy. The secondary bad guy will look up. We think I think it might be John Forgham. If the guy's called Jorgensen, then it'd be John Forgham who's played that part. But I really wanted to give a shout out to Franz Zobda, who plays Countess Zander, who's the bad, who's the villainess who wants to throw... <laughs> throw our her heroine out of the helicopter. She's having a lot of fun. Fran it's actually France Zobda, not Francis. And I'm looking at trans oh, a lot of French stuff, which makes sense. A lot of French stuff. And a thriving career, right up to The Curse of the Volcano, where she played Madame Carla last year. So more power to her. Anyway, she's terrific. But she's thanks, <laughs> thanks to the Flamingo, she's out of the helicopter and into yeah. the falls. And you thought that that... Uh, Flamingo attack went on a little too long. I thought it was tremendously well staged. I, yeah, I, I feel that if you're going to use four or five tricks to pull off a sequence, you shouldn't use any of those tricks more than once. And what happened here was it almost like the whole thing went through twice. So you've got all the tricks twice on screen. And once you've seen the trick once... You're ready for it. You've got the next shot come up and you're focusing on that. But then when it comes up again, you think, OK, I see that that one is now the puppet... This is a, what, there's some animation as well. The long shot that they did, the wide shot of the helicopter in the air, they've actually hand animated a load of um, flamingos flying around. Oh, you see, you, you watch this with great care, but the point Bear is... Bear in mind, I've been watching this film since 1985, so... I, I'm very unforgiving of bad effects, and there's surprisingly little of that in this movie. It's pretty well done, pretty yeah. well made. Oh, yeah. I'm very it's impressed. A, the money's on the screen. It looks... Well, my, you can spend a lot of money and, and not do a good job, then they have done a good job. You, we mentioned Vic helping her build the arrow, Vic Casey. I want to talk a little bit about Vic Casey and Sheena, who obviously have a developing romance. Yes. She always calls him Vic Casey because yes. she doesn't understand that they're two different names, which is sweet. I mean, it's not the only time this has been done in the history of the no, movies, not at all. Yeah. but it's sweet. I like it. And there's a great bit, like, there's a completely, on the one hand, completely gratuitous nude scene where Tanya Roberts gets her clothes <laughs> off. But it So works. rarely seen by me because I used to have it taped off ITV. <laughs> Oh, and so it was so, cut, was it? Yeah, from yeah. the first 10 years of my childhood. Oh, well, I didn't know there was a nude scene. I was a, over the moon when I got yes, the DVD. It was a big Easter egg for me. And no, she's terrific because she's very beautiful and it's, you know, it's hard to argue against. It's the, a funny scene though as well. well her, that's it's thing. her gasp when she goes, oh, you've got fur. Well, yeah, but the thing that I found really funny, so she's bathing like in this little pool and he's, he's there, I think he's shaving or something and she takes off her clothes and the hilarious... The thing is, she's just this innocent child of nature who doesn't, as I put it in my blog, that she just doesn't understand nudity. Like that, that she doesn't have that taboo, and like he's freaked out, and that just works really well. Yeah. It, it lends an innocence and a humour to it, 
which otherwise it would just be totally salacious. And, you know, I, I'm not against the salacious, but it was I thought it was very offbeat and very well achieved in that sense. It's a very odd shot because you're looking at, a, I think it's a 15 rated film. And for the most part, it's a PG film. But that shot, and then toward the end in the final attack, there's some grisly stuff going on at the end of this film where suddenly it, it stops being a fun it's family film. It's unexpectedly adult in places, is yeah. what you're saying. And tonally, it's hard to know what audience they're aiming for. And I, this is why I get the feeling that maybe the film was cut down. Yeah. From, um, from, yeah. Because every now and then they'll wheel on a couple of henchmen, like the guys that have walked through the thorns. And they go, oh, lost those two. And you think, well, I, we yeah. know what the thorns were like, but I feel like maybe we missed a scene here. Yeah, I agree. There, there, there was, but that could just be due to length of stuff not turning out very well. But it does certainly... It, I could well believe that there was a much more adult version of this which was then cut down. Yeah. And by adult, we mean violence, certainly, as well as nudity and sex. Because there's a massive attack at the end. Massive, massive attack. <laughs> <laughs> Whereby, I mean, you've got rhinos involved and everything else, but our main bad guy, you were just talking about Jorgensen... Yeah. Um, he. We think it's John Forgan playing Jorgensen. That's what we think. He gets a, uh, effectively a spear to the throat. Yeah, and just before that, he has this rather boring bit of dialogue where he says, "I was only following orders," and I thought, "Well, that's just such a cliche." I mean, it wasn't even a good gag, but he does. He is ruthlessly speared through the throat by a member of Sheena's tribe. Yeah. Rather politically incorrectly, she sort of seems to like she's the white goddess of this tribe. However, all that's set up at the beginning with rather a cool origin sequence, which I liked a lot, when she's yes. a little girl. Yeah. Um, again, though, I feel like, in terms of the nudity, there's a girl at the beginning of this who I think is probably the wrong age to be nude on screen. There's some... Like, so what happens is a little infant blonde girl is in the African... deep in Af the African uh, wilds of Africa with her parents who are scientists. And something happens, no point giving their way and she ends up orphaned and being raised by the shaman yeah who's wonderful but there is a sequence sort of a time-lapse kind of sequence as she grows up and she's running around innocent child in nature and i thought well they're gonna have to work out when she needs to start wearing a top yes it is a bit uncomfortable those bits because i think i think the way to have gone would have been to have the little kid wearing a top from the beginning but you have to remember that we're in an age that's super sensitized about anything to do Absolutely. with children being exploited but I know exactly what you meant, because I thought, oh, for Christ's sake, put a top on her. And yes. then once Tanya Roberts was there, I was sort of wishing for the opposite. <laughs> yeah, pretty, that's, that's your quote for the back of the DVD, isn't it? <laughs> Just to be honest. And I mean, seriously, she's, yeah. uh, Sheena is magnificent and gorgeous uh, and this exquisite kind of crazy comic book icon. The movie is really good. I mean, it's got those limitations. It's a bit hokey. It's a, it's not it's the. They don't always achieve what they're setting out to do in terms of effects or general budget, and it could it would take a really world class actress to carry off that role. But she she does so well in so many areas. I think kudos to her. It's hard to me not to be unbiased because I've easily seen this film forty or fifty times. <laughs> Um, there were a lot of films I had growing up that we'd had taped off TV that I would just watch because it was the only thing I had. But Sheena, I just loved. I, I watched it. Well, I, I loved it. I watched it and I loved it too. And that. And the is... music obviously stayed with me, which is why I was interested when you said well, you weren't I'm... keen on the soundtrack. No, that, but then you don't have a record player. I was going to say I should have given you the record, but you don't have a turntable anyway. Right. I wouldn't have one in the house. No. Um, quite right too. 
This is my favourite of the movies that you've shown to me so far. <laughs> really? <laughs> this is, no, it truly is. Because I'm of really the animals, because of the crazy comic book sensibility, because of a very good script. Although it's, it is silly, it knows when it's being silly and it knows how to be silly. And I just, I like, I like, I like it. This has been a podcast by Matt West and myself, Andrew Carmel. And very importantly, big shout out to Joe Kramer, who did the fantastic theme music, which you heard at the beginning. Thank you.